This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 806, A Conversation with Corey Saddlemeyer. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 806. It's our conversation with Corey Saddlemeyer. It's actually our second conversation, if you want to go back and listen to that one before this episode. That is episode 530 from November 30th, 2017. So it's been almost three years, and uh, finally we're able to convince Corey to, um, well, it didn't take convincing, it's just more his schedule's so busy and so crazy that finally he had a brief window that we were able to sneak into and uh, take, him, uh, take him for an interview for about an hour and a half or so, or maybe a little less. Uh, it's a little shorter than the last time we were able to talk with Corey, but uh, I think you really enjoy it. Um, I put out a, a wide net to the Marvel Masterworks forum as well as the Facebook group for the Epic Marvel Collection. Um, and I uh, got a lot of good questions that came in, so we could try to kind of hit Corey up with a lot of uh, questions. Didn't use everyone's questions, but thank you to those who did submit, um, and hopefully you appreciate the answers. It's always nice to talk to Corey and get a insight into his world and what he's working on and what he's excited about. And, uh, yeah, it's just always great fun. He's been a, a great friend of the show, so it's always nice to have Corey on. Even though it's his, only his second time, he's definitely, uh, you know, behind the scenes been involved in some uh, some help with questions for certain uh, interview subjects and uh, also kind of pointing me in the right direction on certain things as well. So uh, I always appreciate Corey's input, and it was great to have him back on the show. Hopefully it's not 2023 before we get him back. Um I don't even know if the show will still be running by then, because once we hit episode 1,000, all bets are off. But, uh, you know, it's always great to have Corey on the show, and I hope, think you'll really enjoy this new interview. You can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. If you want to let me know if you're outside of Canada and you're uh, putting in an iTunes review, let me send me an email, uh, and I'll make sure to uh, read it on the air. And I have to actually manually check the different country um, when I pull up iTunes in order to see it. So please let me know so I can take a look. Uh, but without further ado, it's been two minutes of me prattling along, so let's get right into the conversation with Corey Sotomayor. But before I do, one last plug is uh, the next episode after this one. It will be a conversation with uh, Stefano Gariano, uh, who's an acclaimed uh, inker, uh, and he's done a lot of great collaborations with Michael Lark. Um, I was really lucky to have him on the show. We had a, a great time, and that'll be our next episode, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. He has some great insights. Uh, he was so frank and honest about his career as a penciler and how he transitioned into inking. Um, I was really Really, really interesting, and I think you're really going to dig that one as well. So that's the next episode. But uh, without further ado, let's finally get into the conversation with Corey Saddlemeyer. Corey, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's interesting how different the world is. The last time we chatted was November 2017. It's been almost three years. We've had a global pandemic. We've had a lot of Great masterworks coming out in the meantime. Uh, what is the last three years? What would you say is the most memorable thing that's happened to you, work-wise or personal uh, life? <laughs> um, work always kind of becomes a bit of a blur. I'd be in a lot of trouble if I didn't say getting married. <laughs> yes, I think you would be. But uh, you know, it's been uh, it's been an interesting year. Then the twenty twenty. Uh, you know, even if work becomes a blur, 2020 is definitely a work year that I'm not going to forget anytime soon. Or, you know, a year on just about every level that nobody's going to forget anytime soon. It's, uh, it's been an intense one. 
Absolutely. I mean, so like, let's kind of jump into the th- into the thick of it for a second. But like, how has that impacted your work? Because I mean, obviously, you know, everything was kind of shut down. We're used to shut down as well. And then also, obviously, we've seen release schedules push back. How has that impacted your work? Um, yeah, we were shut down, or you know, myself personally, and uh, you know, the titles that I edit, you know, shut down around the middle of May, or pardon me, not May, April, and uh, and you know, we were on pause um, until sometime in July. I want to say middle of July, and uh, you know, so during that time, you know, you know, first it was just kind of trying to to figure everything out, you know, kind of wrap out the stage that each project was at. And you know, make sure everybody that was working on them was taken care of and vouchered, and and then see you know what was going on. You know, since the crew that handles the restoration work on the books are all freelancers, you know, I was trying to keep very abreast of all of the different uh, you know things that were happening related to the CARES Act with the the uh, PPP plan and the pandemic on insur- unemployment insurance and so on, and just trying to you know keep abreast of things to to help folks out because you know I, I care about the folks that work for me and you know want to you know, do what I can to make sure that they're okay and so you know I was kind of in in the thick of that and just kind of keeping up with those programs which were a bit complex and you know, trying to give people advice you know, to help them out and then once you know things kind of kind of settled into uh, into pandemic pause uh, for me it was a bit of an opportunity to, to step back and kind of breathe a little bit ironically because the schedule that we had was I mean just maybe the busiest year that I've ever had and I'm 19 years into doing this now <laughs> um, so it, it gave me a little bit of time to, to assess and uh, and kind of kind of you know, get a little bit of a handle and then well you know once I once I feel like I've yeah you know, kind of got caught up um, you then I was trying to keep myself from not being on a match board, which I don't do well because I come from a family of workaholics. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, so then I just dove into research and, you know, you know, sort of tightening up plans and research for future books and making sure that, you know, I kind of, you know, had everything locked down. You know, I tend to sort of, with long running lines, you know, like the masterworks, which you know, just keep marching forward, I tend to do things in chunks. You know, I'll, I'll kind of get a general sense of what my key points are, like the, you know, Fantastic Four, the John Byrne run, or, you know, Amazing Spider-Man, the Roger Stern run, uh, or the, you know, the Michelini Leighton Iron Man run, and kind of use those as anchor points. And then kind of I'll research everything up to that point and then kind of take a breather for a while. And then once I get a little closer, then I'll tighten everything up from that to, like, the next major post, you know, creative run, and so I just, I'd had a lot of that fleshed out, but I, I just went in deep and tightened it all up completely, so I was like, okay, I don't need to think about this for for a long time again, and, uh, yeah, kind of always being ahead of things as much as I possibly can, I think it's part of what's been able to, to allow the Masterworks to be a a consistent and satisfying line of books, at least in terms of the editorial, the content and editorial approach of, of the series. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I pretty much used my free time to uh, to keep as busy and work as much as I always did. It was just with the 
who knows whether this will will you know actually lead to something that sees print or not. Now I have a question. So, like, when you're working on this and again tightening everything up, like, what does does the pipeline start to become congested in terms of like what you already had approved or kind of? I mean, obviously, you guys are working far in advance of what we know. Uh, so often, like, you know, we finally get solicitations, et cetera. You've been, you've already been working on it forever. So, like, how far into the pipeline were you guys having to kind of push back, and how did that impact? you know, the upcoming release schedules that you guys are trying to get approved now that you have kind of this glut of books that was supposed to be kind of printed out and now haven't been. Like, how does... I'm curious how that impacts the publishing plan going forward. Um, I mean, ultimately, we... You know, Diamond was shut down for two months, and then when things resumed, it was, you know, the simplest way. Everything just kind of got pushed two months forward. There was some balancing of how much, you know, how many books, uh, how many collections in in each month, and some things shift around a little bit more than uh, than like eight weeks. But, but that was the simplest version. And you know, our you know, there was a more complex assessment of the things that we already had planned out for 2021. Because um, ironically, the first day after Marvel's offices shut down for in-person work uh, was the day that uh, I was going to be doing all of my uh, my 2021 planning meeting with uh, David Gabriel and Jeff Youngquist. So uh, <laughs> that got canceled. And that got, you know, they pushed off for a while. And, you know, even then that was a, a bit of a late start. Normally, I personally kind of have 90 of what I intend to do for a publishing year locked down by the preceding February. So if, uh, you know, if we're talking February 2020, I have everything that, you know, it's kind of on my, my sort of wish list that I want to try and get on the schedule for 2021 by that point, like research, budgeted, planned, you know, all of our different source that we have to, to utilize, assessed, and, you know, at that point, I, you know, I pitch everything and I'm, I'm good to go. So uh, I had all that planned out. We had a we roughed out 2021, but that changed a lot more. Um, not a lot more necessarily in, in actuality, but we had to go over reassessing 2021 uh, much, much, much more than we did with uh, 2020. Because from a solicit standpoint, I think at the time of the, of the shutdown, uh, most of our hardcovers print overseas, so they're advanced solicited even further than a normal comic is. And so I think we'd already hit up to October 2020. It had already been solicited. So, you know, there's really only two months of 2020 to, that moved around. Mm-hmm. And some of this shifting with movie schedules affected you know, uh, the release schedule for, you know, things like Eternals that were you know, tying in with that as, you know, movie production and, and release dates were being assessed and reassessed. And uh, it's... it's most of us that are, that are involved in it have been doing it for at least 15 years, I want to say. I'm pushing 20 years, so we're all, we've, we've seen a lot, so I, we adapt pretty well. I, at least I, I hope, I hope it, it, uh, it seems that way to the outside world. <laughs> Now, since our last conversation, there's, uh, I guess, I think two particular lines that have kind of started in the Masterworks. Uh, one was uh, you launched Kill Raven in uh, 2018. Uh, what was the kind of process of bringing that to Masterworks and, and kind of launching that line? Was that something you had wanted to do for a while, or was there any kind of issues with how that would play out? Uh, Kill Raven has been on my wish list for a long time. I mean, Don McGregor, yeah, 
fantastic work for Marvel. And, uh, you know, I'd gotten to know Don and uh, visited him and his wife in the apartment in South Brooklyn when I did the Black Panther Masterworks with his Jungle Action run. Mm. And Don... Don is like a, a, a collector's like dream slash best friend. He <laughs> saved everything. He has virtually every single script that he wrote from his career. Um, wow. So with you know, his Marvel stuff, he has manila envelopes that he has in the file cabinet that he's had for decades, and each folder is a script. He keeps all of the letters that fans wrote in, in the envelopes, he'll have his own like layout sketches and things that he did to kind of work through concepts. Um, on the reverse side of the envelopes, he would kind of draw notes for like dialogue or themes or character concepts and things like that that he had. And he just, I mean, literally, he's got a file cabinet just full of these things. And so, you know, when Killraven uh, came around and had the opportunity to get that on the schedule, gave Don a call, and he since moved to Rhode Island. And so uh, he's originally from Rhode Island. And so I you know, set up a, a day with him and uh, drove out to Rhode Island and spent the day with, with, with Don and his wife, Marsha. And we talked to Kill Raven and went through all of the things that he'd saved over the years and went through his folders with scripts and stuff. And, and uh, you know, I think he and Marsha are just wonderful people. So it was, it was nice to spend the day with them. And then you know, we got so much material to... Uh, to add to the book and I, mean, I wish we had more pages in the book because you know, I could have just kept going and going with all the great stuff that Don had to contribute that we could add so, wow. yeah, and you know Pete Craig Russell is amazing and yeah, he saved uh, a lot of his original artwork uh, particularly the uh, Kill Raven graphic novel he saved every single page had it all scanned oh my god and so we restored the uh, every page of the Kill Raven graphic novel direct from his original artwork and then, you know, those uh, painted color graphic novels, uh, you know, these, the process that was called blue line coloring. And it is very, very difficult to restore. And then having the added complexity of overlaying a, a separate new scan of the original art um, in and just added a different, more complex process. And what we can do now with a new scan and all the kind of control over painting line, painting line weight that they could do that tight controls and that's that we have now you know, when they shot the original film for that um, you know, it, it created the issue of we the detail is so much better that the what's called a trap or an undercolor that creates an, an even value with the way that the black prints it was kind of oozing out around the edges of the line art and so that we had to go and, and tighten up and make all of that painted coloring uh, what you'd say like trap to that you know the, uh, the new original art scan so it was it was a heck of a lot of work and uh, you know Mike Gallagher deserves every gold medal there is for our restoration on a uh, on Now I have a question. Um, this is just a general one about you. Have you found like so? Obviously, you've been doing this a long time. Um, your eye for art and original art, and kind of seeing the flaws and figuring out how to restore, must be one of the best in the business. Who else would you put on a short list as having as good an eye for original art as you do? Um, well, I mean, and 
with an eye for original art, you mean like hunting original art down? Um, that's part of it, but also just being like when you work on restorations and you've seen obviously, you know, fall, you know, inferior restorations, et cetera. And like your eye for detail and knowing how to fix it and how to, and you and Kelleher working together, like, you know, who, who amongst, who else amongst, uh, you know, that kind of people who work in restoration, do you think have the same eye for restoring art, uh, like you guys do? Um, the folks that have worked with the longest, going back to 2003, 2004, um, even, you know, before Mike Kelleher, um, uh, Peter Dawes and his crew up in Winnipeg, uh, you know, they go uh, under the company name All Thumbs Creative, and yes, uh, they, 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 they got Kelleher beat by a year in terms of tenure um, working with me, and uh, yeah, they, they've always been a fantastic job. Um, you know, they, they get a lot of the, the top priority books, you know, Amazing Spider-Man, Avengers, you know, often, you know, Thor, um, they just, you know, Peter and his crew always do a great job, so, you know, I, uh, they, by extension, you know, get either, you know, the highest, uh, you know, the highest priority, most important in terms of, like, character or content books, or the ones that are the most difficult to restore, so, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, the reward for, for hard work and, and, and doing hard work well is more hard work, um, Going back, I guess, to the other idea, there is who do, who do you, who do you think is as good as or as as good as good an eye at hunting down original art as you do? Because obviously, the amount of work you guys have to do in terms of research to to find some of this stuff is pretty incredible. So, who else would be on that short list? Oh, in terms of actually tracking down originals, I mean, you know, nobody's going to beat Scott Dumbier on that. Yeah. Um, Scott, yeah, I mean, he was an art dealer before he was an editor. And so, I mean, he's just, you know, he's got deep, 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 deep roots in the collector community and, you know, that and the, the flexibility and budget that IDW uh, gives him for the artist editions that, that he does. Just, you know, really good. He, he turns over, turns over mini stones and, and just, just as beautiful, beautiful books. I mean, I love those artist editions that he does. I mean, you know, Scott and I are always helping each other out with, you know, I get original art scans of some stuff, like for the Howard the Duck Masterworks. I got some great scans of Brunner pages, and you know, so right away I'm like, "Hey, just got these. Check them out, Scott. And you do need them." And you know, we kind of, you know, we sort of have, uh, you know, just kind of folders that we fill up with. You know, we don't know when we might use this, but you know, you just kind of you save them for when you need them. And uh, in terms of tracking down the originals, I mean, Scott's. Scott, Scott wins hands down. There's no competition there. <laughs> now you bring up uh, Howard the Duck, and obviously another new, relatively newer line is Ghost Rider. So, what was it like to working on bringing those both into the Masterworks forum? Because I feel like both of those, I mean Howard the Duck probably more so, but definitely were among those that people really wanted to, you know, have Masterworks. So, what was it like to finally get those on the schedule? Uh, Ghost Rider, yeah, Ghost Rider, yeah, I, I kind of had an idea where I wanted Ghost Rider to land in terms of when we'd start doing masterworks of it for a little while. And, you know, I take a very long-term, very big-picture view of things that doesn't always completely make, uh, you know, fans who, you know, say want Ghost Rider, for instance, like right now. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm happy to, to see them moving and, and you know, uh, restoring you know, those early issues, particularly the Mike stuff was, it was just a, a real pleasure, and you know, got to have Mike write uh, a remembrance of uh, you know his work uh, on Ghost Rider and co-creating the character for the Masterworks, which was was a lot of fun. And yeah, yeah it's, uh, 
it, there's few characters out there that, that are visually as iconic as Ghost Rider. Um, when Marvel has done uh, some like uh, like interest group, uh, you know, The, in terms of character recognition, like Spider-Man, like hands down the most recognized Marvel character to like your random person off the street. Um, then who was I'm blanking? Who was second? But Ghost Rider was third. Like wow. people like they don't know who Ghost Rider is. They don't know what he does. But the visual is just so cool. So just like an instant like that is awesome. I don't know what it is. Maybe I want to read it. Maybe I just want a t-shirt. But you know, the the you know the guy on a motorcycle with a flaming skull head is pretty tough to beat. <laughs> and then bringing in Howard the Duck. So I mean, Howard the Duck is coming up. We haven't had it yet, obviously, but you're working on it. Um, I mean that that has to be you know one of the ones that people were very excited and clamoring for. So what is it like to being able to you know bring that eventually out into our hands? Yeah, well, Howard the Duck is one that you know I I was I was ready for Howard the Duck whenever Howard you know I, I could convince everybody it was time for Howard the Duck. Um, <laughs> Steve Gerber is you know one of the best writers uh, you know Marvel's seventies period. It's just he was pushing and he was. Yeah, setting new ground, uh, just yeah, a very, very ahead of his time writer in terms of the goals that he set and the topics that he dealt with and with Howard the Duck, you know, being able to work outside the the typical Marvel mold and, you know, create a character that, you know, ran for president and got into politics and dealt with sex and dealt with humor and mixed in funny animal comic tropes and yeah, there's just there's so much so much going on in Howard the Duck, and then I think to an extent it's it's not as appreciated as it should be by by current readers, and part of this because it was it was so much of its time. I mean, the character running for president in the '76 election, yeah, you know, it was something that's very very seated in a in an era. Um, but you know, it, we've got a presidential election this year, so it's got relevance there, and. Uh, and you know, there's fantastic art by Brunner, fantastic artwork by Gene Colan, and yeah, I can't wait to get to Howard the Duck on too. Um, it's going to be a great book. Lots of lots of bonus material. There's some original artwork that I'm tr- still trying to get tracked down to include in the bonus section of the book. And uh, yeah, please. They did an entire issue of Foom uh, promoting Howard the Duck and the presidential run, and you know, we restored all that, and that'll be in the bonus section. And you know, they had a, a campaign portrait, and they had a Howard the Duck campaign button, and all of this cool ephemera from uh, you know from this early run of the of the series, and you know, everything's going to be included in the masterworks. And you know, the restoration that we're doing is you know, just going completely back to ground, um, and yeah, it's going to be definitely the the best best restoration, best presentation that this material has ever seen, and, and I'm I'm very happy to see it as the 300th Marvel Masterworks. It's completely worthy of it, and uh, yeah, uh, it's challenging sometimes. Bronner was uh, an amazing colorist um, who used all the colors in the box, or some some because of what would reproduce at the time, you know, some colorists kept a more limited palette, but 
you know, he really pushed the envelope the same way that, you know, guys like Tom Palmer and Klaus Janssen and Bill Adams did. And that makes the color restoration a lot more challenging, but the end result looks fantastic. So I have a question and um, about coloring. It feels like there's been a lot in the last couple of years of people discussing coloring and restorations and whether or not it's really accurate to you know, the original interpretation. And I feel like was it Villa Rubia has done a lot of work online, kind of talking about it. Um, how do you feel when you read people talking about the restoration and how the colors are applied and, and what the they sometimes look like in some of these books? Um, you know, it's a, maybe a touchy subject, but like, I've never seen any issues with the colors and the masterworks, but I'm just curious how you feel about there being more discussion about this and how you kind of, which side you've kind of fallen with regards to it. Uh, it's, there should be discussion because everyone has their own opinion and perspective. And you know, the fact that you can say you look at the masterworks and you think they look great. Jose looks at them and I've had many, many, many conversations with Jose over the years. One of his students was was an intern of mine, and uh, you know, it's, it's it's an opinion. There is no right or wrong way to do it. There's so many different ways to do it. I mean, there's you know, restoring things direct from a scan and trying to keep that you know newsprint pulp paper with all the registration mistakes and you know bloated out lines and drop out and things that you know, that represent that that original kind of nostalgic artifact. And you, know, you can do things like, you know, like Jose is suggesting, which is, you know, reflatting digitally, you know, recreating the flat colors of, uh, of an original, but then um, trying to put that that nostalgic pulp newsprint feel on top of it. And then you know, there's what you know we do with Marvel's collections, um, which is you know matching the original colors and you know presenting it and something like that. Uh, an unexpurgated rendition without any you know, any interpretive intermediary present. And, you know, for me, um, I find that to be the truest and most effective way of approaching it. Um, anything else dives directly and immediately to subjectivity across the board. And that is a very slippery slope. Um, you know, the idea of editing and altering what the original work was um, just, I don't think with classic collections, it's appropriate to editorialize um, mm-hmm. because it goes from, I don't like this color, I want this to be a little bit more like this, to they referred to Spider-Man as Superman, or they recalled, you know, uh, you know, Robert Banner, Bruce Banner, and uh, or they, they uh, Palmer, and all, all those were real mistakes that were made back in the day, and and then people you have to fix that, and like you know, it's once you let that genie out of the bottle, um, people tend to you know sooner or later you, you you start injecting your own opinion into it, and the way that I've always looked at it is no one wants my version, my opinion of what Fantastic Four number one should look like. They just want Fantastic Four number one. So we replicate it as it was originally produced. Because anything in between that and the consistency of how you're going to execute it, um, there are dozens of people collectively that work on these books and based on how, you know, the quality of guy number one's uh, you know, monitor and how he has it calibrated 
understand how his eyesight works and what the lighting is in the room that he's working on versus my screen versus the printer versus the other. It introduces all of these different subjective variables into it that just throws consistency out the door. And I just always felt that that maintaining consistency gave the customer a better, more reliable product than introducing all those different layers of subjectivity into it. Um, because what I subjectively think is the right way to adjust a comic book from 1973 so it looks like someone intended, when that someone often isn't a person that is still alive, or maybe the work wasn't even credited, so it's not really what the person intended. It's what the person saying someone intended intends. Mm. If you follow me. Um, I, I, I try and keep away from the slippery slope on that because the the implications in terms of editorializing, the implications in terms of diverging from the original laws, you know, people, you know, to say sort of have questions, you know, like they have this idea that, you know, people would, there were reprint editors that would, you know, like to go back in, maybe like to fix the mistakes and add their names to like the editorial caption boxes and, and on and on. And it just, like, like no. Like just you have to try to remove yourself from the process and just let the work be what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what Stanley and Jack Kirby and Dan Goldberg and Art Simic did back in the day. It was good exactly the way it was. It doesn't need anybody else to tell them what it needs to be. Like keep it what it was, and that's my that's that's my approach. Those other approaches are totally valid in their own way, but. There is no right or wrong way, ultimately. Mm-hmm. It's all an individual philosophy. I mean, people can argue that, you know, my, you know what I've described is subjectivity itself. But, yeah, that's, everybody gets to have an opinion, and it's, I'm fine with people. People should talk about it. People are talking about it. It means that they care and they're engaged. And I would rather have people care and be engaged than, than have no interest, because they don't have interest, then we're not making books because they're not buying books. Mm-hmm. So I have a, 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 a before I kind of throw it to I mean as you know uh, the Marvel Masterworks forum has tons of questions for you so I'll get into some of those in a minute but um, just generally speaking like looking forward um, is there I mean obviously you can't tell us anything that hasn't been already announced in any way but any teases or any particular things you want to talk about in terms of you know the current projects that you're kind of you know setting up that we may not see for a while obviously but uh, that you're excited about. Oh, um, 2021 is looking to be very busy. Um, yeah, uh, we have everything. I mean, I have everything through the end of the year, you know, planned and uh, and, and ready for approval. And, you know, the you know, approvals are coming through in a month by month right now. And, uh, man, I don't know if I want to say just yet. You know, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm, until something is 101%, like, on the schedule approved and in motion, I usually, you know, I, I keep tight lipped. Okay. Um, and with the way that 2020 became 21 and things have moved around, it gets a little blurry for me even. But, yeah, there's a lot of great books. Um, and, yeah, particularly in, like, the Robert E. Howard um, corner of the Marvel Universe now. What is it like being able to really spend time in that universe? Like now that I'm looking forward to uh, to bringing even more of that work back into the print. 
I mean, going in on the deep end, I mean, I knew Bledros Conan, but I did not know a complete, comprehensive series of collections coming up. Like, we haven't just planned the one book that you're seeing available for solicit. I mean, with the Conan book, like, nothing was solicited until I researched and planned the entire run, everything from 1970 to 2000. Um, and, yeah, that, so I read a lot of but you know, more recently, a lot of Cole and a lot of you know Solomon Kane, and you know I wasn't able to work on the Solomon Kane book, which you know, I would have loved to. But you know it was scheduled too aggressively with as busy as 2021 was, and there were some other other factors involved that you know, just couldn't couldn't get it on my plate. Um, but you know I, I would have loved to have been able to dig into that material, and you know there's other other material in the the Robert E. Howard. Uh, universe that uh, I'm looking forward to get to uh, uh, very quickly here. Okay. Now, this is a, a bit of a strange question, but um, of all the masterworks you've worked on and all the different uh, introductions that you've had, is there a particular introduction that you really liked or uh, someone who wrote one that you were just really stoked you got them to write it? Um, I mean, there's been a lot that have been very stoked to have people write them. <laughs> I've, I mean, I've got to have you know, Stan and John Romita and Jim Steranko and you know, Gene Colan and Joe Sinnott and, and just, you know, like, I mean, it's just, it's a pleasure. I mean, you, you, you name, like, you know, the most influential creators from Marvel and, and I've gotten this wonderful opportunity to talk with them. Uh, you know, and, you know, Stan, you know, when Stan calls you up, it, 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 you know, it turns what could be a lousy day into a great day very quickly because you know, Stan was just completely magnetic, energetic. I mean, you know, he, he turned that stand thing on and I mean, it was infectious. I mean, there's the reason why Marvel became so successful because Stan, Stan could sell like nobody else. And, you know, he, but he still made it feel personal, which is, uh, which is, you know, uh, it's an important thing. Absolutely. All right. So an intro that, that, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, please. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Uh, no, no um, in terms of an introduction that uh, that, I, that always sticks out that uh, that I remember that I I didn't necessarily I didn't expect what came and in, in, in the best possible way. I'm not saying that I didn't expect something that was going to be good, but I'd asked uh, Steve Englehart to write a Defenders introduction for one of the Defenders masterworks, Volume Three, if my memory serves. Um, since he and Steve Gerber were contemporaries and, and, you know, had known each other and worked together. And, you know, what, what Steve, Steve Englehart turned in for the introduction was a really touching recollection of his, his time with Steve and like a time where they were actually, when they were uh, working on building the Malibu Ultraverse and, you know, they were sitting together around a pool and like spending time together and swapping ideas and building this and, you know, but it was you know, he he related a very you know a personal experience none of us would ever know none of us would ever see it's not reflected in in the page of a comic book anywhere but it it, it gave you uh, you know a touching sense of of who Steve Gerber was as just as a person and like how he you know had they become friends and bonded and shared you know this creative friendship as well and you know that 
that extra insight, that extra ability to know a little bit of Steve Gerber who's since passed, I thought was very special. Hmm. So I'm going to move on to some listener questions. So that's definitely a good answer to that one. Um, so the first one uh, comes from uh, Bain Wilson, and I feel like it's the question you probably get asked the most, which was, uh, is there is there any chance for ROM or Micronauts? And I feel like obviously that's more of a legal thing and not really your purview. Um, but, I mean, how, how often do you get asked this question? Um, often enough. I mean, heck, uh Sign me up. I'm ready when when and if the lawyers can figure it out. But that that's one for the lawyers. I mean, you know, um, yeah, I'm I'm ready to go on you know 2001: A Space Odyssey if that can can ever be you know uh, something that Marvel can get on the schedule with, with all of the the different licensing considerations factored into that. And trust me, there's people Marvel that would love to see this back in print. It's not just a me thing, but yeah, ultimately that comes down to lawyers and. Uh, uh, lawyers, I am not. Lawyers, I cannot speak for. Okay. Uh, next question is from Hardcase, who asks uh, if he's just wondering if there will be a second volume of Marvel Rarities. Um, yeah, I mean, it's totally possible. Um, I don't think we're there quite yet. Um, you know, the way the first Rarities went, I mean, we pretty much locked down the Silver Age. I mean, there, I mean, there wasn't anything really you know, left for the most part other than rarities. Um, so, you know, they came together kind of as an extension of that. And, you know, I can see another rarities eventually, but I don't think that we're near the point yet where where we've kind of hit all of the other possible lines that we might have and pared things down to the point where what is going to be a rarity is obvious. Um, you know, what wouldn't, you know, fold into its own line or another line. Um, yeah, and the, the, there was a lot more publish, titles published in the 70s and the 60s. Uh, so, you know, multiple rarities volumes to encompass all of those uh, odds and ends, and I think it'd be a while before we get there. Okay. Uh, Silver, Silver Age Marvel Man asks, uh, this is kind of a longer one, so uh, forgive me. Uh, he says... Uh, we see that Marvel eventually seems to get the rights to publish properties from the past that we never thought they would. Could this possibly extend to sci-fi and horror color and black and white comics adaptations? This could lead to complete collections, a hardcover, hopefully, of worlds unknown slash unknown worlds. Some of the other Marvel magazines and all of the color horror comics, late sixties, early seventies, with new material for the time. Would you? Can you please comment on that? That's his question. <laughs> I mean, it's possible. I mean, I don't think, you know, at a certain point in time, no one would think that, uh, you know, Marvel would secure the rights to publish Miracle Man or that we'd be back in the Conan the Barbarian business or, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, forever that Master of Kung Fu could just, it was just never going to be reprinted. Um, so you, you can never say never. Um, and, you know, obviously we've, we've checked, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's three nevers off the list right there. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, um, I don't know that it's at present something that, that is priority we're immediately chasing down, um, but I, I, I certainly can't rule it out. Okay. Uh, he asked another question. Would Marvel be, oh, this is again more of a, a theoretical question. Would Marvel be willing to license someone else to publish a complete Pussycat hardcover? Um, licensing equals licensing and legal, and I am editorial, so <laughs> I can't say whether they would or wouldn't. Um, I think the content is cool. 
I think I would totally dig seeing a collection of the material. Um, there's a lot of a lot of great Bill Ward and Bill Everett and, and other Marvel creators that you know were you know moonlighting on the magazine management side doing this stuff, and it's cool. Um, I like I said, I dig it, but um, as to whether we would license it out, not something that I can say one way or the other. Okay. Um, have you guys ever talked about any plans for a, a Hulk magazine collection? This question comes from Macabra. Uh, we've done the essentials uh, that Mark Beasley uh, edited uh, about 15 years ago or so. Um, in terms of uh, another collection, it's totally possible. Um, it's not something that's currently like on the docket. Um, those uh, Hulk magazines, when it switched from black and white to color, some of the first blue line coloring process books with the paint style coloring, and uh, yeah, those are those are challenging to restore. Very time consuming. Very very time consuming. And uh, you know that that makes it a challenge. That makes it a, a expensive book to produce, and so therefore an expensive book to sell because the the costs are high. Hmm. Not saying it can't be done, but um, yeah, it would probably probably need um, yeah we need. A little bit more oops than a, a, a collection of it itself in terms of marketing angles to, to, to properly get that hefty budget, you know, over the over the finish line and make it a reality. Okay. Um, uh, the Macabre also asked the Son of Satan masterwork. How how soon? <laughs> um, uh, not in twenty twenty one. That's a good answer. Um, now, next question is from uh, Tiger Tiger Eyes, who asks, uh, "Do you look at the secret ballot poll results on MarvelMasterworks dot com every year?" If I can look at it, how is it secret? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure if I get that one, but <laughs> um, um, I, I don't remember any secret ballot. Okay, uh, another listener question, uh, which is uh, Marvel superheroes Secret Wars as a Marvel Masterwork question mark. It is not a Marvel Masterworks. Could it be a Marvel Masterworks? Yeah, of I guess course. that's the question, yeah. I feel like that would sell pretty well. Yeah, I mean, hey, Mike Zach, man. Mike Zach crushed it on that book. Yeah. He's fantastic. I love restoring his Punisher miniseries, um, and we get to do a lot of that from original artwork because uh, one of the biggest deck fans out there, uh, Chuck Costas, is a major art collector and just had awesome guy who helps out all the time big Zek fan big Buckler fan so yeah he made that uh, that Punisher Island with this uh, an extra special token you know it, it just hands down you know, you know the best that's ever looked in print so hmm. yeah, doing the same thing with Secret Wars that'd be fun yeah uh, now another question from I believe this is from uh, Chip Totek he asks uh, will Howard the Duck also publish the magazine stories the first two volumes of Howard the Duck will go through the original uh, color series, uh, so like issue 31, and then exactly what the shape of a, of a third and final volume, third presuming final volume, would take isn't locked in stone yet. Um, you know, there's the black and white magazine, there's the newspaper strip, um, there's the issues 
on the restart of the series, the movie, the movie adaptation. There's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of odds and ends. Lots, lots, lots of little things that hoover up in a, in a third Howard book. So I have extensive research on it, but I won't say that I've decided exactly what it'll be yet. Um, I wouldn't exclude, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't rule out the, the black and white magazine material. That's great stuff in there. Okay. I also asked, uh, is, the, is there a year limit for the Masterworks? I think this is kind of questions come up before. Or can they go on indefinitely? Um, indefinitely. I mean, whenever anybody said a year limit, it's because they have some sort of preconception about, you know, how, like, I mean, some people like, once there's 75 Masterworks, I'll have everything I could ever need. They'll have, there won't be anything left. I mean, we're 300 deep um, and going strong, so um, no. I mean, like I said, I I plan pretty much every active line of Masterworks that isn't a finite one. You know, I I have planned seven years ahead of, you know, wherever, you know, the volume is at present. I mean, volume one's coming out, I've, for the most part, got it figured out probably through at least volume seven or eight, depending on where the major creative team uh, changeovers occur. Okay. Uh, I guess this is Mindex2 asks, uh, what goes into deciding what gets masterworked, omnied, or original hardcovered, and who has to approve of said selection? Does Marvel look at past sales, general interest from online sites such as this one, upcoming movies, floppy comic sales, most wanted polls, predetermined mapping, etc.? What is the voodoo line? What becomes of what? Um, I can't, you know, I can only really speak for the material that I edit. Um, okay. And there's, you know, we have a bit of back and forth about things otherwise, but, you know, generally speaking, most of the things that, that you know, that I tackle are extensions of the Masterworks you know, that are ongoing chronological sequential line of books. So, um, you know, we're usually not going to do an omnibus or something until we've done the masterworks because, you know, restoring this stuff is an expensive proposition and, you know, doing it in the masterworks uh, gives us the ability to focus and do the best possible restoration. I mean, when you do these 1,000-page omnibus books, it's, they're beasts. They are not easy. They are very resource-intensive and time-consuming. And being able to balance the demands of productivity, um, trying to have some kind of normal life, and uh, you know, and getting it all done in a calendar year. Um, you know, uh, if everything, you know, some people want everything to be an omnibus. If everything was an omnibus, you'd get a lot less books because you just can't. The, the three times the material. It's mm. not. It's not possible. And. Um, if that was the only product that we have, you know, it, it, you know, sure, out of the gate, everything's a volume one and it sells well, um, you know, but then you get X number of, you know, you know, down the line and, you know, you're carrying the expenses of restoring that much material in one go is going to make the profitability of, of the product a lot more challenging. And so doing something like a Masterworks makes a lot more sense because it allows us to keep going and keep restoring that material and then, you know, that gives us the opportunity to, to, to when we think that we can have it work in a different format to transition it over to that format. But um, in terms of what 
makes, yeah, I mean, to an extent, um, more of a David Gabriel question than a me question. Okay. That's fair. Uh, Justin Fairfax, and this is a little bit of a longer one, says, uh, since the Masterworks reprints, you edit, get grandfathered into the Epic Collections eventually. Are there schedules coordinating the time between a Masterwork release and an eventual Epic trade collection? For example, I see only later era Defenders collected as Epic volumes, not the early ones that have already seen Masterwork volumes. When will there be a Defenders Epics for those early issues? Um, well, we're doing a Defenders Omnibus, um, so yeah, Omnibus we're not going to double up the omnibus and the epic at the same time. No. So, you know, the, the omnibus is going to have its, its you know, its, its time in the sun, and uh, then, you know, we'll, we'll get doing the earlier uh, defenders and stuff in the epic format, but, you know, it'll, it'll be a while before that sees epic, and there's no, there's, there's no death formula or anything like that. I mean, I keep very aware of where the epics are at in relationship to the masterworks and coordinate, um, to make sure that you know one isn't stepping on the other's toes too much, um, and you know even the epics that I don't edit, I keep abreast of of where those are at, and uh, just trying to coordinate things. So there's yeah, each line has its breathing room. So you know, for instance, we're doing the the beginning of the the McLooney Leighton Iron Man run in the Masterworks right now, which basically don't plan on seeing that in an epic anytime soon. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, next question is from uh, to be Hulkinued too. Is uh, what is the behind the scenes story behind the special cover to number three hundred? Uh, you know, David Gabriel just said, you know, I want to do something different for this one, and uh, you know, <laughs> I wanted a variant. He wants a variant, and I was like, we already have a variant, so he wants a variant variant. So <laughs> you know, it's kind of neat. It's fun to do something different, and. Uh, you know, Jay Bowen is, uh, is our designer on staff who came up with a look for this, and it's a little bit of a modification of, you know, the, the, the classic, you know, Masterworks trade dress going back to, you know, 87, and, uh, yeah, it was, you know, David was just like, heck, let's try something different, let's do something just, just for fun, you know, just, uh, just to, you know, celebrate the fact that, yeah, this is a good question for the, the listeners out there and, you know, folks that, uh, if anyone knows otherwise, they can post to the Marvel Masterworks uh, message board website and, and let me know. But I, I think that the Masterworks at this point are the, the longest running and the you know, largest number of volumes of, of any line of comic reprint collections out there. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, well, I mean, you're coming up on 300. I don't know anything else that has more volumes. Yeah, I mean, the other things you know, don't have the sequential numbering thing like in it easy to, 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 to tally them all up but uh, you know I, I, if, 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 if we have if we've won <laughs> this, this non-competition uh, I, I, I'd, I'd love to know <laughs> now here's a question from Dave Tone uh, has there ever been a restoration of older material where there has been no original art or film and all we had to work with was a printed comic book It's kind of interesting uh, when DC did their 75th anniversary book with Passion that uh, that Paul Levitz worked on. 
he did a talk at the 92nd Street Y and was talking about DC and DC's archive history and the, the assets that they had. And he'd mentioned that DC didn't have didn't have things prior to 1949 and like the first 15 years of the company, which would have gone you know. question comes from uh i lost their name but um the basically the, their question was why are letters pages generally omitted from marvel masterworks whereas we do sometimes see them in omnibuses etc um letter pages have never been part of the masterworks going all the way back to when they started in 87 um and that's become you know the 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 default approach um, for the format of mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, you know, stories, um, letters, pages. You know, things have evolved a lot over 300 volumes, and you know, early on, the added page count, the costs associated with it to include letters, pages would have really created a conflict between the editorial and story content of what you get in, in a collection versus you know, the page count. If we would have added letters pages, then you'd be losing issues. And I would rather not have to compromise compromise on the the story and content breaks that each volume has. So each volume is as complete of a of a read unto itself and has the appropriate endpoints and start points. Hmm. Um, I'd rather have that than have letters pages. And with the omnibus, I mean, the, the omnibus format was honestly the pretty spur-of-the-moment thing that came up before the first Fantastic Four movie, and it was just like, hey, well, what if we throw three masterworks together and, and you know, do it in a, in, a, in a bigger format? Like, sure, what the heck, why not? And, uh, and you know, people talked about wanting letters pages, so it was like, yeah, we'll throw the letters pages in the omnibus, and that just kind of became the default. Uh, I do an omnibus. He gets letters pages. Um, Masterworks never had them, never will. Um, if there's specific instances where letters page has an editorial or some sort of different, you know, unique content that helps give direct insight or explains a 
component of the stories that you're reading, I'll add it to the bonus section in the back. But your, you know, your average run-of-the-mill letters page uh, is not because we become part of the Masterworks format. I mean, at 300 volumes deep, um, what what we include is pretty well established. Okay, that was a great, great answer to that question. Uh, next one is from uh, Hickson23. They ask, uh, will we see more volume number ones in 2021, or is Howard the Duck, Howard the Duck it? Um, I would have to pull up the schedule and refresh my memory because, you know, it, it's been an atypical year. Um, I, I, I should know that off the top of my head, but I'll confess, I don't. Seems like they're trying to catch you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, I think we will. That's a good one. Okay. Okay, that's exciting. Uh, I had to schedule to refresh my memory. <laughs> okay. Uh, next up, uh, let's see. Uh, this is from T- Taylor. They ask, uh, do you think the original art collecting community could be doing a better job of keeping the art for these stories together, or at least until Dumbier has scanned it? <laughs> Um, you know, original art, tracking down original art is, you never know. Um, you know, some folks, you contact them and they're like, absolutely, I'd love to, and then I never hear from them again. And there's other people that, um, you know, they turn around, scans on a dime, and like, it's the best. You know, they're, they're doing a great service to everyone. Um, you know, and there's some people that just they don't they they have no interest, and you know that that's always rough. Um, you know, uh, I had a I had a kind of a, a tough experience, a disappointing experience for me, where there was an issue of John Byrne Fantastic Four, complete issue that went up to auction, and I got a hold of the auction house and talked to them, and they were totally down with helping me out, and I was so happy because I couldn't wait to make this Byrne issue like issue look amazing and uh they said that they were completely done with getting me scanned and helping me out and then then they ghosted me and never got back to me and uh that that was rough you know i mean i i love the opportunity of being able to 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 restore these books and make them look the best and when there's an opportunity like that it just kind of flips away it's it's killer um but yeah i mean I, i i can't I can't say that a community, um, you know, should or shouldn't do something better or worse. It's, it's individuals, and, you know, they all make their own decisions on what they feel is appropriate. And, you know, whenever anyone contributes, I mean, they're, they're, I, I, I endlessly appreciate it. And, you know, they're, they're doing something wonderful for, for everyone that appreciates the work. Mm-hmm. Next question is uh, actually came from two people, Cold Snap and Silver Age Marvel Man, asking it again, which was uh, basically they wanted to know if the Sergeant Fury Masterworks are gone forever or if they're going to get some more. Um, I can't say they're gone forever. Um, yeah, John Severin's one of you know my favorite creators. I got to work with him on one of his last Marvel projects, and it was, it was a total pleasure. I mean, he, he was just as great in you know, 2005 as he was in 1965. Um, and you know his his Sergeant Fury run is right around the corner. Um, some of the assets that we have for that are are more in terms of line reproduction, more delicate and more challenging to get the kind of level of reproduction that you know that that is our standard. And so I've pulled back 
back on Sergeant Pier a little bit because of that expense, um, but that doesn't mean that I'm ruling it out or thinking that it can never happen. Um, because again, you know, I, I want to see that that work look great. And I mean, you, know, you start getting a Gary Friedrichs run, and there's all of his iconic, you know, issues that really sort of deal with more contemporary and you know, the Vietnam War, and and yeah, I mean, there's, there's there's good content and war comics. For now, you'll have to. Uh, uh, go with uh, Jack Kirby, you know, Marvel, Marvel, War Omnibus, and uh, that can be your War Comics and Sergeant Fury Thick. Okay. Uh, the next question, um, and this was an interesting one, is just more if if you had to get rid of every on um, every epic, uh, sorry, uh, Marvel, sorry, every masterworks that you have, and had to get rid of them all except for one, what would be the one volume you kept? That's tough. I I I I don't know. I, I, I can't I, I I can't pick just one of my children. <laughs> and I guess would it be one of the ones you worked on that you had the the best experience with? Do you want to be able to kind of have that and relive that when you, when you read it, or would it be something that you're saving for the actual content within and not necessarily the process of putting it together? Um, it would probably ultimately be content that drove it but it would also have to be an excellent restoration mm. because like if, if, it's, if it's not like I you know I, my eye is too attuned to this stuff if it's not up to par like I, I can't I, that's, that's, that's the curse of getting good at this once 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 you're good at it everything that isn't done well just screams at you and uh, so I mean being masterworks you know, we've been looking pretty good for a long long time here but uh it would, it would be content driven and uh, hard to pick out just one because there's so many there's 300 um, and in terms of like the production side of it I mean for me when you're exacting about what you do in terms of the restoration quality and all that um, when you finish that book you got to go to the next one because you, you know that you just push the stone up the hill and it rolls back down every single month <laughs> and uh, and you know at that point uh, you just you just keep pushing and then you know the other thing is, for as perfect as you always try and make things, I, I can open any book and look at a, you know, just sooner or later you come across a panel and you're like, oh, how did I miss that? <laughs> you know, or how did, you know, the modeling should have been slightly different to match up. You know, it's just, yeah. Um, being discerning means that you see all of the mistakes, so it makes it tougher to enjoy it after you're done with it. <laughs> Dilo Tempio wants to know what's the plan for reprinting the uh, Barry Windsor Smith covers to Conan Saga. Um, that is not one for me to answer. That's more of a licensing thing. Hmm. Um, you know, since Conan is a, you know, it's not a Marvel property. Um, yeah, beautiful, beautiful work. Uh, would love to to include it in our Conan collection, but it's not one that I can speak to. Okay. Uh, approximately how many people or teams do you employ for art restoration? Um, on average, probably about five, six folks, and that may be individuals or groups, you know, like Altum's Creative and Mike Kelleher's output, Kelestration. I mean, you know, there's many, many people working, you know, under you know, the, the, the studios, essentially, that they've and other books, you know, uh, books like, you know, Wesley Wong and Tom Mullen, you know, they're, uh, they're kind of one-man armies. And, 
know, but usually it's, it's about a half dozen or so at any given time. But you know, kind of have people that that will do work uh, on occasion rather than full time, and you know, they kind of cycle in and out of the crew as uh, the schedule ends up and flows. Okay. Uh, Dilo Tempio also asks, the Marvel Age magazine printed a lot of content and occasionally original material through the 80s. Is there any plans to reprint the series in whole or as piecemeal selections in relevant Marvel masterworks? Um, it's, probably a, it's probably a piecemeal thing with Marvel Age. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of neat little features and interviews and articles, but I don't know how much it would hang together or have an audience um, you know, as a as a as a print or particularly a hardcover premium print product, um, you know, at this point or forty years later, um, yeah, and you also know, get a lot of. I mean, it was promoting everything that Marvel was publishing, so you're going to bounce into a lot of licensing considerations there as well. Mm. Um, yeah, and that 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 would that's wonderful lawyers again, um, but I I don't think complete Marvel Age is likely. Okay. Now this one, I don't know if you can necessarily answer, but Chip Totek says, uh, uh, this is the entirety of his text, so I'm not misquoting him here. He says, it seems David Gabriel stated in a recent live chat with uh, Omar on a YouTube channel that the masterworks and the epics cost the same to be produced. I find it hard to believe since they're totally different paper binding type of cover dimensions restoration, but is it true? And if so, why the masterworks have a price tag that's almost double? Um... It's the price of producing an epic versus masterworks is like apples and orangutans. Um, <laughs> masterwork, masterworks are, are, are you know, budgets are significantly higher, um, many times higher than an epic. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly the the question or the the response that you know, between uh, Omar and David, but, uh, but they, they, the budget acts the same. Hmm. Um, now here's a question. Um, so Curtis Finley asked uh, how you, how you feel the epic collection popularity has been growing alongside obviously the longstanding Marvel Masterworks line, and where you see both lines kind of heading down the road. Um, heading forward. I mean, yeah, uh, I guess so. I, I, Does it surprise people yeah, that I, the epics have been have kind of taken off the way, that, or it seems to have? taken off as much as they have in terms of popularity. I mean, Marvel Masterworks is obviously always going to be the premium, you know, method of getting, you know, the best looking restoration of these classic books. But now we have the, the epic collections as a, as a new, you know, way basically kind of taking over from where the uh, essentials did, but doing it, you know, generally more comprehensively at the end. So is it as surprised anyone that it's been doing, I guess, as well as it has? Um, no, there's no surprise. I mean, you know, it, it, it did you know, take place of the, Essentials after the essentials kind of you know uh, you know run their course and influenced to an extent by the masterworks trade paperbacks, it being a regular line of uh, of you know color classic reprints in trade paperback um, would perform well and the the epics stand on the shoulders of the masterworks you know the epics wouldn't wouldn't uh, be able to to functionally exist. And, you know, as I mentioned, like, you know, the costs are significantly different in terms of restoration of, of material. Um, and, and, you know, in Epic, is isn't going to be able to, to hold that water. Um, so, you know, there's a relationship between the two, and, you know, there's you know, no surprise that, uh, that 
they have, you know, have succeeded and, and I'm happy to see them succeed and you know, there will always be a relationship between the Masterworks and the Epic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter M. asks, uh, is the nature of your restoration challenges starting to differ as you press further into the 80s material for the Marvel Masterworks line? Sure. Um, there's a particular period, I want to say 78 to 80, definitely 1980, where the print quality was atrocious. Just, <laughs> the, the, just, just so bad. So bad. And, you know, with with being able to identify uh, the color values that were used uh, based on the original printing, when the printing is so dense, everything is closing up so much, that can get extremely difficult. And, uh, you know, there's times where, you know, literally go through the reference against the restoration channel by channel, like, you know, cyan, magenta, yellow, um, you know, proofing each one separately because you have to sort of look at it in individual channels to get the contrast between the different values to make sure that you've identified them correctly because because everything is just closed up and darkened up so much. And so, yeah, I mean, when when you're doing that, literally, you know, you're, you're taking three times as long to to proof every single page. So, yeah, that is not fun. I do not do not particularly enjoy that. But, uh, but you know, there's a, always sort of edges and flows and changes um, over time, and uh, you know that's one of the things where people, you know, as we were talking before, have like different preferences about thinking the way that things should be restored and reproduced. Um, you know, the palette that people worked with was the limited sixty-four color palette. That's what comics had available to them at the time, and the printing had variations, but that were still working with that same palette. And when you restore things using those original values from the 64-color palette, it snaps into an amazing degree of consistency over time, despite any variations in the printing, which, to me, is an indicator that the colorists were working with, uh, with a fairly consistent sort of mindset of what they were trying to do and achieve um, to an extent, independent of the way that the color reproduced, which is not to say that there weren't people that were taking that into account. Certainly there were, but but the consistency is something that, unless you were as deep in the weeds on this as, as I am, probably wouldn't be as readily apparent at all. Hmm. I'm curious, oh, have there been other like projects that either are at Marvel but not Marvel Masterworks, uh, or even other companies where you've been impressed by the level of restoration. Obviously you have a, an appreciation for it that most of us can, you know, just wouldn't have because you've worked in it and you really understand how difficult it is. So have there been any restoration projects either at Marvel or at another publisher that you've been, really been impressed by? Oh, sure. Certainly. I mean, there's people doing great work out there. Um, no doubt. Always has been. Um, one of the ones that comes to mind, it's been a few years since it came out. Um, Warren Magazine's Warren Magazine's War Black and White mm. title uh, Blazing Combat if I remember correctly um, uh, yeah that was you know, reproduction on that looked fantastic um, guessing they had to have still had the original print film for it to look as sharp as it did um, and you know, obviously a lot of the, the EC books have always looked great because Bill Gaines was ahead of his time in you know, yet another way um, by holding on to those originals and then allowing Russ Cochran to reproduce 
from all of them when he did his EC library set. You know, so um, those folks have been, you know, fantastic. I mean, uh, I, I, I shudder, no pun intended, with EC's horror comics to think what they would look like if they had to reproduce from print copies given all of the fine detail that Williamson and Frazetta and Wally Wood and John Severin, who we've talked about before, and all those guys. I mean, Now, over the last couple of years, I mean, obviously, you're, you're always being kept busy by all your Marvel projects, but also uh, you've had other freelance work as well. Um, I, I do remember, I'm trying to remember how many years ago it was when there was something, something was announced that you were going to be working on something. And I remember being like, oh, my God, does this mean Corey's leaving Marvel? And you're like, no, you idiot. You're, I'm working freelance. I'm like, oh, OK. Um, but how do you manage to, to do those other freelance projects as well? Um, yeah, I mean, I've been freelance for 14 years now, um, you know, almost. I mean, parts of that exclusive to Marvel, but freelance for 14 years now. And, you know, I mean, how do I juggle it? I mean, you're, when you're an editor, I mean, you're a professional, you know, you know cat wrangler, deadline chaser. Um, you know, if, if you're going to survive, you've got to be really organized and uh, really good at just keeping those balls in the air. And I mean, it's, I, I have an aptitude for it. I, so with, you know, adding, uh, you know, adding a little bit more work onto, uh, out of my place, you know, it's not that, you know, it's not that, that difficult to manage. I mean, I'm very careful about what I take on. I never, you know, I'm never going to commit to something I don't know that I can handle in advance. I'm just, you know, would, would never overcommit myself and put my in a position when I couldn't give somebody everything that I've got and exactly what they deserve, which is everything that I've got. Yeah, I've been working with the guys that are away doing their collections, and uh, they're they're wonderful to work with. Great bunch. Like they, yeah, efficient, organized. They they know how to get it done. They yeah, they make it, they make it easy for me. I hope that we make it easy for each other. Um, and then I was consulting for AWA, um, which is a new publisher that was started by Axel Alonzo and Bill Jemis and. Yeah, I'd work with Axel and Bill. Axel originally hired me at Marvel, and so they had me come on and consult for them for a while and help set up some of their editorial and production processes and train their staff. And, yeah, I actually wrapped up with them right before the pandemic shut down. Mm. So, yeah, which was good in its way, so that everyone everyone had the experience in the training, and we'd gone through a few books and got things to print and kind of worked through things, and yeah, so that that then. When everyone had to, you know, kind of, you know, decouple and start working from home, that they were on firm footing with that. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think it probably would shock many that you're not an exclusive kind of Marvel employee, that you are still kind of a freelance guy, considering, you know, the, the, the Masterworks is essentially your baby. You're, you know, it's obviously something you care very deeply about. Was there, has there ever been talk about making you kind of a more permanent fixture on staff? Uh, well, I mean, I worked on staff. Well, I know, but like, but like, considering your like the the level of importance of the Marvel Masterworks, you'd think that they would, you know, you would not be just a freelance kind of editor on it; that you'd be more of an exclusive guy. So, has there ever been a conversation about that? Um, you know, I've been exclusive at times, um, particularly when I was you know, overhauling Marvel's archives. Yeah, you know, I was on exclusive for a number of years then, and uh, you know, that was kind of a mutual commitment, uh, you know, to each other that, you know, this was a big undertaking that was going to take a couple, three years to 
fully execute in that you know, I knew that they weren't going to, to sort of <laughs> decide, oh, this is too much, let's just stop halfway. And they knew that I wasn't going to be like, no, this is too much, I'm getting out of here halfway. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I, yeah, I, helped, you know, I helped build a lot of the collections department and how it functions you know, with Jeff Youngquist back in you know, the days, you know, originally interned for Ben Abernathy, who's you know, handling the Batman books at DC now, and and you know, I was I was I was there in kind of a fixture when we really built the apparatus. So I've just been part of it, and and yeah, I mean, we I'm comfortable. I believe they're comfortable, so no, it's, it's fine. Yeah, we, it gives me the flexibility to do other things and, and uh, you know, work on my crazy house when I want to work on my house and, you know, do home improvement projects. And it allows me to budget my time. And, you know, I'm like I said, I come from a long line of workaholics. So uh, it's not like you know, people will, will often say that, you know, like, I don't know how you, how you can work from home. I'd watch Netflix all day or whatever. And it just always boggles me. It's like, you, it's, you still have a job. Actually, you don't have the guarantee of a job. Mm-hmm. So how could, how, could, how could you work from home? You've, you got to hustle. You have to have the work ethic. And I've, that, that's never been a, you know, I've always had the work ethic. ethic. I've, I've got a paper out when I was 10 and haven't stopped working since. <laughs> The last question for you, and I may have asked this in our last uh, conversation, but you know, if you ever were lured over to DC, what would be the number one project you'd want to work on restoration for? Um, um, I'd love to. I mean, you know, off the top of my head, uh, Neil Adams Batman, but actually, I'll change that and I'll say. Uh, for purely sort of nostalgic reasons for myself, uh, I'll say the, the Norm Brayfogle Batman run because that's the first stuff that I read when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, after the the Michael the first Michael Keaton movie, and uh, you know Batman was the biggest thing for a ten year old. Uh, you know, I started you know reading comics at that point, and uh, Norm Brayfogle was the artist on probably Detective at that point. But then you know later switched over to Batman, and so you know. For just personal, I mean, everybody's got their sort of personal nostalgic thing, which is weird for me in its way with the masterworks because other than a couple Arthur Adams issues in their most recent Uncanny X-Men volume, I don't think there's anything that's been in the masterworks that I read when I was a kid, <laughs> you know, growing up on comics because I either didn't know it existed or it was way outside of my paper route budget to buy those back issues. <laughs> so I don't I don't I don't have a you know, there's a lot of people that sort of have a nostalgic collection of, you know, like you know, thing what they want to have something collected for that, that kind of reason. And to some extent I think maybe it's advantageous for me with Marvel stuff because I everything everything is of equal value to me. Everything is of equal importance to me. Um, everything gets, you know, hundred percent. You know, there's no kind of there's there's a sort of bias there. I mean, heck, yeah, I did a, that Marvel Universe by Frank Miller. Because you know, Frank Miller, um, you go from Norm Brayfogle Batman to what's this Dark Knight thing to reading that, and it's blowing your mind as a kid. Um, so I was really happy to do the that you know, complete Frank Miller uh, Marvel Universe omnibus. So I guess maybe I throw a little nostalgia 
bullshit in there here and there. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess DC would be more grateful about that. And you know, it's, it's, it's sad that Norm's passed because from, I would, you know, I consider him one of the definitive Batman artists, and absolutely he defined that area era that was one of the the characters' most successful time periods. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Corey, thank you so much for spending another, you know, another bit of your time with us. We always appreciate it, even though sometimes we have to wait a few years between visits. But it's always a, a pleasure to have you on, and thank you for going through the exhaustive uh, list of questions from our listeners. Thank you so much. Sure, it's been fun. I can't believe it was 2017 the last time we did this. But I mean, yeah, you know, uh, time flies. A lot of masterworks in the meantime. Absolutely, and uh, and many more to come. Absolutely. Well, again, thanks so much, and we'll be sure to have you back on at some point, maybe three years from now, but we'll see. As as soon as I can. Hopefully I don't get too busy again. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Corey. Talk to you later.